This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. For every issue of our quarterly print magazine, we choose a theme. This fall, the new issue's theme is one I particularly love, blood and guts. The issue includes reflections on our squishy, icky inner workings. This episode features three articles from the jam-packed Blood and Guts print issue adapted for radio. Each story is about the visceral realities of our own bodies. We have a story about FKA Twigs, an artist whose provocative body-contorting music videos have the habit of making people uncomfortable. We also have a deep look at how abortion is portrayed in films and on TV. But first, a story of lost identity. This story is read by author Kare Mugo, and the piece is called Critical Conditions. It was August 2012, one of those warm summer nights that holds the promise of adventure and the thrill of an open highway. The radio was turned up and left to fill the space between two bodies. An open window let the speed and air in to cool the rider's warm skin. Midnight travelers hopped up on caffeine sped by in trucks. Teenagers in cars headed to the next party swerving lightly in and out of white lines. Couples stared out at infinite blackness and, occasionally, each other. It happened fast. A deer leaped boldly across a highway, skirting speed in orbs of light. Seconds later, on the side of a Missouri highway, A.J. Strong lay pinned beneath the steering wheel of his overturned car. A blurry uncertainty hung over the moment, only one thought clear to him. I'm going to die. He'd imagined this moment many times, he tells me. It was one of my biggest fears. What if I get into an accident and they think they're picking up the sky and they cut my clothing off and realize that I have all these female parts? And that is exactly what happened. Strong was transported to a hospital in St. Louis There, Strong spent days in an intensive care unit before surgeons could operate on him. Then, another week in recovery. He had internal bleeding, a shattered shoulder, and a broken back that told the story of what happened on that dark highway. He cried as his body was mended back together. But it wasn't just the physical pain or the invasiveness and helplessness that comes with being hospitalized. As a patient, he lost his identity. Inside the hospital walls, he was no longer trans. As he told me, I had been living my life as a trans man, going by my chosen name for almost 10 years and asking my friends to use male pronouns. And then I get into this situation where who I really am completely disappears. I felt invisible. That person I had been living as, AJ, did not exist in that hospital setting. I became this female who was called by my old name and was treated as such. In the years that followed his accident, Strong began his physical transition through hormone therapy. He legally changed his name and gender, and by all appearances and markers, is male. Still, he worries about what would happen if he was in another car accident. Would his identity evaporate again? Caitlyn Jenner, Laverne Cox, Aidan Dolan, and other trans-identified persons are more visible than ever and are able to speak to mainstream audiences like never before. But what is notably missing from the conversation is a discussion about the barriers that trans people face in getting adequate medical care. 
A lack of understanding of trans identity, gender presentation, and the community's needs creates barriers to healthcare on every level. From insurance coverage to conversations over the pharmacy counter to the emergency room. Results from a 2009 Lambda Legal survey of LGBTQ persons called When Healthcare Isn't Caring found that almost one-third of trans and gender nonconforming people had been refused healthcare they needed. Another 21% of trans and gender nonconforming people were subjected to harsh or abusive language by healthcare providers. One of the most basic medical needs of trans people is the right and means to physically bring one's body into alignment with one's gender. The mental and emotional well-being derived from this process, along with the benefits of passing as cisgender, like safety and reduced discrimination, are well known and documented. Yet medical treatments and procedures needed for a safe, informed, and healthy physical transition are strictly guarded by the medical community. Rules and criteria requiring trans people to prove these treatments and procedures are necessary. Yet, medical treatments and procedures needed for a safe, informed, and healthy physical transition are strictly guarded by the medical community. Through rules and criteria requiring that trans people prove these treatments and procedures are necessary. While these vary clinically, basic requirements usually include a period of ongoing psychological care, proof of a lived existence in the target gender, and in the case of sexual reassignment surgery, letters showing a mental health diagnosis all in order to prescribe sexual reassignment as the recommended treatment. Even when these requirements are met, many insurers opt to not cover hormone therapies, sexual reassignment surgery, and in some cases, the very mental health counsel and any evaluations that are required by clinicians in order to meet the criteria for ongoing psychological care that is needed in order to physically transition. So many trans and gender queer people can't get insurance coverage for the help they need. The medical community also fails trans patients in lack in sensitivity. AJ Strong, who was in the car crash, is not alone in his experience of finding himself invisible in interactions with the healthcare system. Ola Osaze, a community activist who identifies as a trans fag feminist, told me, In many states, healthcare professionals don't understand the community and view us through a rapidly transphobic lens. They either refuse to treat us because, to them, our gender identity, presentation, and markers doesn't align with the kind of care we're seeking. For example, a trans man needing OBGYN services. For these reasons, many trans people simply avoid interacting with the healthcare system altogether, denying themselves much-needed preventive and even urgent care in order to limit their exposure to transphobia. In addition to all this, Lambda Legal reports that collectively, the trans community is much more likely to be low income and uninsured, and as a result, much less likely to have access to quality health care than cisgender people. They are also more likely to face higher rates of unemployment and work discrimination. Consequently, many trans people make less income than cisgender people or do not receive employer-based health insurance. The Affordable Care Act, which included the first federal protection against discrimination in access and health care for trans and gender non-conforming persons, expanded access for many in the community. But, as with employer-based insurance, insurers do not have to cover physical transition services, requiring people to pay out of pocket for these necessary treatments. That fact is not lost on many who witnessed the glowing response to Caitlyn Jenner's very public transition. 
She's lucky to have the resources to top-notch medical care to help her transition. The current approach of many doctors to trans identity began in the 1960s after the very public transition of Christian Jorgensen, a former U.S. Army clerk who sought gender transition treatments in Sweden. After more than two years of electrolysis, hormone treatments, and surgery, she returned to the United States, the New York Daily News announcing, XGI becomes blonde beauty. In the decade after Jorgensen's public transition, there was growing demand by trans people for the same gender-affirming treatments and increased media coverage followed. In 1980, when the American Psychiatric Association added gender identity disorder to its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the treatment of trans individuals and their access to healthcare became concretely embedded within the medical community. Trans identity formerly came to be regarded as an illness that, like any other, required protocols and regulations for treatments that safeguard both physicians and patients. Except that trans identity is not an illness. The most recent Diagnostic and Statistical Manual issued in 2013 has since removed the mental disorder label, reclassifying it as gender dysphoria. But this association continues to frame how trans people experience the healthcare system. For trans patients, this is significant. Providers are often required by insurance companies to adhere as closely as possible to the DSM guidelines and descriptors on the trans condition in order to ensure patients are not denied medical coverage for services. The creation of medical experts on trans identity and its categorization as a psychological disorder also informs how politicians, society, and institutions alike view trans individuals. This medicalization of trans identity has meant that doctors, not trans individuals, have defined an entire discourse on identity, one that is based on traditional alignment with society's conception of gender. Parallel with the history of reproductive rights for women, the question at the root of the professionalization of trans healthcare is whether some individuals know what is truly best for them and their bodies. Adri Strong, whose official diagnosis of gender identity disorder occurred before the DSM change, outwardly rejects the mental disorder label and doesn't think it should be necessary to access treatments needed for physical transition. As trans people, he told me, we spend a lot of time building ourselves up and building each other up, and then we go out in the world and have to convince others. The main idea is that we are human, just like everyone else, and there is nothing wrong with us. We are not sick. We are not mentally ill. But then we have to go through the system in order to physically transition, and in order to get our prescriptions, we must first see a psychologist and get a letter stating that we have a mental disorder. writer Kare Mugo, reading her article, Critical Conditions. Kare is a queer writer from Nairobi, Kenya, who's now living in the Midwest. She likes to tell the stories she thinks should be heard. You can follow her on Twitter at the underscore warm underscore fruit, the warm fruit. And you can share the full article, Critical Conditions, from bitchmedia.org.
You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Last year, British artist FKA Twigs burst onto the international music scene in a big way. Writer Vanessa Willoughby wrote about FKA Twigs' unique videos and surreal style for the Blood and Guts issue of Bitch. Here, Vanessa shares her take. FKA Twigs doesn't care if you like her. Critics have crowned the 27-year-old British singer, dancer, and surreal video artist as the queen of underground R&B. But she doesn't seem to care what critics think. In a recent interview, she asserted that as she's getting more famous, she'll enter into a world of people who don't understand her, and they never will. She said, I don't expect them to understand me, and I don't want them to understand me. I quite enjoy it when people don't get it. FKA Twigs is the stage name of Talia Barnett. The name is a reference to how the British singer's bones audibly crack when she dances. She grew up in Gloucester, England, and was the only mixed-race girl in her Catholic school. As a teen, she began her career dancing for big acts like Kylie Minogue. Last year, she released her debut album, LP1, which was a sexy lightning bolt of innovative art. As a producer, Twiggs emphasizes the potency of marrying the powers of surrealism and minimalism. Smoldering against the wave of her high, breathy vocals, her music videos often find the sensual in the unusual. Twigs actively avoids the imagery that marks most R&B videos. Instead, she's creating a new visual discourse all her own. In the video for her song Two Weeks, she presents herself naked and painted gold, dancing in a slow, smooth, disjointed way on a giant throne. Around her, a troop of identical miniature versions of herself dance like shrunken court jesters, drinking from her fingers and pouring water into a cistern. FKA Twigs told The Guardian newspaper that she writes exactly what she thinks. If it's a raw subject, I write lots of things and then pull out all the fluff words, she told the paper. Weird things can be sexy. Vulnerability is the strongest state to be in. How boring would it be if we were constantly dominant or constantly submissive? This summer, Twigs dropped a surprise five-song EP and an epic 16-minute short film that, as she expected, many people are scratching their heads trying to understand. The film follows Twigs through several bizarre landscapes. 
as she morphs from a plastic-like sex doll to a pregnant version of herself. Her belly nearly dwarfs her compact body. She caresses the bump with silver talon fingers in a gesture that's more sinister than maternal. She reaches down to pull out the baby with her bare hands, but it's an endless parade of colorful scarves. In her videos, FKA Twigs often positions herself in a place of power. If she uses nudity, it's to convey vulnerability. She is an autonomous force, layered and contradictory. Whether her videos and music make you squirm, dance, or feel something you haven't felt before, FKA Twigs is guided by intimacy and honesty. She embraces the ugly and uncomfortable in her identity as an artist who's interested in exposing the ups and downs of her womanhood. That story about British artist FKA Twigs was by Vanessa Willoughby, an editor, writer, and a huge FKA Twigs fan. She's also on staff of the literary journal, Winter Tangerine. Look her up. Propaganda is brought to you by the team at Bitch Media, a feminist nonprofit independent media outlet where reader and listener support it. So if you want to help this show exist and grow, head over and donate to our work at bitchmedia.org. We appreciate every single dollar. I mean it. Okay, enjoy the show. Ever noticed how in movies and TV shows, if a character gets pregnant and is considering having an abortion, a surprising amount of the time, something horrible will befall her. She'll be killed or commit suicide or go through with the abortion only to discover the doctor is a completely unsanitary quack. But in reality, abortion is an extremely safe medical procedure in places where it's legal. Writer and sociologist Gretchen Sisson discussed this disconnect in the blood and guts issue of Bitch. Gretchen is the co-author of a study that surveyed more than 300 films and TV shows where abortion is a plot line. Here she reads her article which is titled, There Will Be Blood. We, mankind, have progressed so far. The season finale of The Nick, the Cinemax show set in the Gilded Age Hospital in New York City, begins with Dr. John Thackeray as he cuts into a woman's uterus. Her clothes and the bed underneath her are drenched in blood. From such humble beginnings through the astonishing modern world in which we now live. The woman's pulse fades and vanishes beneath the nurse's fingertips. The operating theater is quiet for but a moment until Dr. Thackeray cuts open the woman's chest to manually compress her heart, not in the hopes of reviving her, but in an attempt to salvage the situation and experiment on a fresh corpse. This frantic failed abortion is not especially gruesome within the wider context of the Nick. At the Knickerbocker Hospital, things are often grisly. Patients die one after the other. The hospital administrator embezzles money and steals bodies. Thackeray, the hero surgeon, is a racist cocaine addict. Bloodiness is not unusual, and medical failure is expected. 
This single abortion story is noteworthy, not because of its gore, but because it typifies the way abortion is portrayed in popular culture. The Nick's portrayal is just one example that follows a century-old precedent set by the earliest examples of American on-screen abortion stories. The first of such stories was written and directed by Lois Weber. As a female filmmaker, Weber was an anomaly in cinema's earliest days. She was also a professed admirer of Margaret Sanger's activism, including her rejection of legal abortion in favor of gaining wider support for birth control. In Weber's 1916 silent film entitled, Where Are My Children?, a district attorney is busy prosecuting a family planning doctor for the charge of obscenity, while his wife secretly obtains repeat abortions and helps her friends to do the same. At the end of the film, the attorney and his wife face a lifetime of lonely, bereft childlessness, and ultimately, their maid's daughter ends up much like the failed abortion patient in the Nick. Nearly a hundred years of on-screen abortions are bookended with dead women. In reality, abortion is a simple, fast, safe medical procedure. It can be done as an outpatient procedure taking less than an hour or by taking pills in your own home. Today, the statistical risk of death from abortion in the United States is virtually zero. The risk of major complication is 0.2%. Approximately 1.1 million abortions are obtained in the United States each year, and the vast majority lead to no physical injury whatsoever. But on screen, abortion is a fraught, dangerous, and often deadly plot point. In research my colleague Katrina Kimport and I published in the journal Contraception, we used online sources to identify more than 300 films and TV shows that included abortion storylines over the past 100 years. 14% of plot lines included the death of a woman who considered getting an abortion, whether or not she actually obtained one. Frequently, these deaths were the result of violence. Characters committed suicide or were killed either while contemplating what to do about their pregnancies or after getting an abortion. About 5% of fictional women, like the character in the Nick, died because of medical complications of the abortion, and about 20% of characters face major consequences such as infection, hemorrhage, hysterectomy, depression, and infertility. On screen, clearly, abortions are much, much more dangerous than in real life. Of course, we cannot and should not expect the on-screen world to perfectly mirror reality. Screenwriters find drama and humor in rare, extreme, bizarre, or fantastical circumstances. Yet while other medical procedures, such as CPR, are consistently shown as safer and more effective on television, abortion continues to be depicted as unsafe. These manifold stories linking abortion and risk build a social mythology that abortion is dangerous for women. Full stop. It is easy to imagine how these gruesome, dangerous depictions of abortion could affect political ideas. When abortion seems so bloody and unsafe, is it any wonder that abortion restrictions framing abortion as dangerous gain political traction? That hospital admitting privileges for abortion providers might make sense? As our popular culture builds and reflects the social myth of abortion as dangerous, such regulations become a resonant way for politicians to restrict abortion access while painting a picture of concern for women and their health. What then would feminist on-screen portrayals of abortion look like? 
It's important to understand that while the dangerous abortions on screen seem to express anti-abortion sentiment, it doesn't mean the people who created the episodes and films are anti-abortion themselves. The writers of Friday Night Lights, for example, consulted with Whole Women's Health, a Texas abortion provider, to ensure that they accurately reflected Texas law at the time. Do you think I'm going to hell if I have an abortion? No, honey, I don't. Plus, many of the unsafe abortions on screen are actually set at historical moments when abortion may have been more dangerous, and their portrayal as such might build a case supporting safe and legal abortion. The slow spreading of blood across the back of April's dress in Revolutionary Road and the shivering pale face of Penny in Dirty Dancing are dangerous abortions that can be understood as progressive, even feminist, because they support the idea that illegal abortion is harmful. He didn't use no ether, nothing. I thought you said he was a real MD. The guy had a dirty knife and a folding table. I could hear her screaming in the hallway, and I swear to God, Johnny, I tried to get in. I tried. It's all right. Most on-screen representations of modern-day abortions lauded by feminists avoid the physical experience of the procedure entirely. As viewers, we might see the prologue and epilogue to the abortion while never following the character to the clinic for the procedure, as in the Friday Night Lights storyline. Sometimes we might enter the operating room, which is, to say the least, not what most clinics look like, only to have the screen fade to black before the abortion begins, like in Grey's Anatomy, which has certainly never shied away from showing a medical procedure of any other stripe. In the case of the 2014 Jenny Slate film, Obvious Child, the story is sanitized through lightheartedness and humor, and in the HBO show Girls, an abortion decision is followed by after-the-fact flippancy. Hey, Max, remember from before when we did sex to each other? I can't get your blouse off. I'm having your abortion. Do you want to share a dessert? Leave with that. Definitely leave with that. Prove it. This is not a criticism of these stories. They are careful, nuanced, and well-written. They focus on the woman making the decision and not the clinical procedure itself. They are also, often explicitly, calibrated responses to the goriness of political anti-abortion imagery. Such responses are necessary, and they deserve to be viewed and enjoyed by feminists. However, we should also recognize that the reality of abortion, even safe, straightforward abortion, can be messier than that. To explore this, it's important to consider what contemporary abortion actually looks like. There is a long preamble of decision-making, appointment planning, and for more and more women, fundraising, traveling, forced ultrasound viewing, and mandatory waiting. But when it comes to the actual procedure, studies show that between 82 and 93% of patients are satisfied with their care. It seems, then, that the cumulative cultural effect of anti-abortion imagery has made it difficult for popular culture to acknowledge the physical or even clinical experience of contemporary abortion in a feminist way. We are left with this tension. Abortion is safe, but we cannot dismiss it as a bodily experience. How do we understand and represent the corporeal experience of abortion, which involves blood and often pain, to be sure, without ceding ground to the violent, gruesome, and gory ideas promoted by anti-abortion propaganda? Is this, should this, even be the goal of popular culture? Perhaps not. For nearly every abortion story shown on screen, even those that seem truly out of the ordinary, there is a viewer with whom that story will resonate as similar to their own. 
It is a tall order to expect popular culture to reflect a range of logistical, emotional, and physical experiences around abortion in a thoughtful way. If an abortion is too bloody, it becomes scary. But if an experience is too simplified, it leads the work involved in obtaining and undergoing an abortion. This double-edged sword is particularly unwieldy. Film and TV creators shouldn't try to navigate this balance in each story they want to tell, because whatever good faith story they do tell will likely reflect someone's reality. Abortion is bloody. It can be uncomfortable, even painful. But blood does not inherently equate with the violence and danger that the anti-abortion movement wants it to. That was the article, There Will Be Blood, by author Gretchen Sisson, who, when she's not busily writing for Bitch, is a sociologist with a think tank advancing new standards in reproductive health. Her work specifically focuses on social constructions of parenthood. Thanks so much to Gretchen, Vanessa, and Kare for going outside of their usual writer comfort zones to read their articles on the air today. You can find their pieces and all of the other amazing articles published in the Blood and Guts issue, including a look at horror films and a timeline of menstrual product advertising at bitchmedia.org. Or subscribe to Bitch and get a copy delivered right to your door. It's so fun to get mail, especially mail that's about blood and guts. Thanks for listening, everyone. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>